Hey listeners, Eve Feinberg here. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this October, you'll have a chance to see FNS On Air live from ASRM 2021 in Baltimore, Maryland. Come by the ASRM booth in the exhibit hall as we'll have interviews with the biggest names in the field, do some audience Q&As, recap some great oral and poster sessions, and so much more. For those staying virtual, we'll also be releasing clips on FNS Twitter and Instagram accounts as well as a daily podcast recapping of our favorite moments from the conference. We're really excited to take a look at all the great science going on in our field. Can't wait to see you there. And now, back to FNS On Air. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate in chief. Well, hello, Fertility and Sterility readers. Welcome to another Fertility and Sterility on Air. Today, we're going to go over the September 2021 Table of Contents for you keeping score at home. That's volume 116, number three. I'm here with uh, Eve Feinberg and Pietro Bordoletto. Uh Hello, Eve and Pietro. Good morning, Kurt. Good morning, Pietro. Hey, guys. Pleasure to be back with you. So we got a, we've got a great lineup of articles today, including some um, ASRM pages hope we're going to uh, tantalize you, but more importantly, I hope we're going to educate you. Quick shout out to Micah Hill, who's usually with us for this podcast. He's out this month, but you'll hear his wonderful tenor voice next month as well. First article, I think, is going to be the views and reviews, and we're going to hand that over to Pietro. Thanks, Kurt. Now, did you say tenor or tender? Because both apply. <laughs> I think I meant tenor, but maybe it's a base. But, uh, we'll, but regardless, we're, we'll miss him. All right, here I go. There's a great trio of papers included in this month's FNS Views and Reviews section that summarizes medical and surgical treatments that impair male fertility and how to best manage patients with iatrogenic male infertility. I'd like to flag this whole section as a must-read for REIs who frequently find themselves taking male histories and really should be able to screen and refer these men to a male fertility specialist. The first is an article by Huang et al. from Stony Brook University, where they review iatrogenic effects of radical cancer surgery and its effects on male fertility. The authors highlight how radical prostatectomy and cystectomy are frequently performed in men under the age of 60, and a common complication is obstructive azospermia due to transection of the vas and removal of the seminal vesicles. While some fertility sparing techniques have been developed, the authors point out that the primary prevention via sperm banking are extremely effective and should be offered to all. The authors also make a point to highlight how both retroperitoneal lymph node dissection and pelvic colon surgery frequently involve disruption of the sympathetic nerve branches and are also associated with high rates of anejaculation or retrograde ejaculation. The second article, by Velez et al., points out that assessing and treating infertile males requires an intimate understanding of the tangled web of hormones, anatomy, and sexual function. I think most of us are pretty familiar with how chemo and radiation can negatively impact rapidly dividing cells in the testes and how androgen deprivation can result in loss of sexual function or libido. But I think perhaps less of us are familiar with how finasteride, a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor used for alopecia and BPH, 
is associated with an increased risk of sexual dysfunction during and even after discontinuation of treatment. The authors go on to cover how SSRIs, which are prescribed to 1 in 8 Americans and can cause sexual dysfunction in up to 80% of patients, including poor libido, erectile dysfunction, and anejaculation. They make a point to mention that SSRIs have been shown to decrease not only bulk semen parameters, but also increase DNA fragmentation results. And similar to finasteride, there are also lasting side effects, even after discontinuation of therapy, that they now call PSSD, or post-SSRI sexual dysfunction, which not only include SSRI-related side effects, but also a decrease in testicular size, ejaculatory volume, and persistent testicular pain. Finally, I think the section of exogenous testosterone in this article is an excellent read for all of us who frequently get asked about what their partner should do if they are already on it, and how it may be impacting their semen parameters. There's one final article in this trio of views and reviews that covers the tricky clinical scenario of how treatments for BPH can have significant sexual side effects, particularly ejaculatory dysfunction. One of the cornerstones of treatments of BPH are alpha blockers, such as tamsulosin. And while blocking alpha-1 receptors in the prostate and bladder neck are favorable for symptom relief, they also inhibit contraction of smooth muscle along the seminal vesicles and vas, resulting in retrograde and anejaculation. Luckily, as this class of medications has expanded, the more favorable side effect profiles have been exploited with more selective targeting of the different alpha receptors. Eve, my first question is for you. You work in a busy urban academic REI practice with excellent male infertility specialists in the same building as you. But before they get to the subspecialist, how much history taking and counseling are you doing, and what do you feel the modern day REI should be able to do themselves versus refer out to a male fertility specialist? That's a great question. We do have fantastic male reproductive urology counterparts. I always like to think that I want to tee up the patients before sending them. So I do take a really thorough male history, including sexual function and dysfunction, medications, substances, especially things like marijuana, as it is legal in Illinois. I don't do physical exams, and I don't generally draw hormone profile lab work on males, but I generally feel like I get a good sense from the history and from the semen analysis of what might be happening before I send them off. I think that's pretty typical. I know that there are some REIs who actually open a separate chart for the males and treat the males as a separate patient. And I think there are probably some REIs that maybe don't dive in as deep. But I do think it's a spectrum. And I, I do think that the male part is 50% of the equation. And we have to really hone in on, on the entire process of reproduction, which includes the male. Moving on, I want to go through the ASRM pages next. There are two fantastic committee opinions this month. The first is ethical issues in oocyte banking for non-autologous use. And the second is guidance on the limits to the number of embryos to transfer and update from a previous document. As for the first, ethical issues in oocyte banking, this is really a must read. It is an ethics document that addresses the multitude of issues that are unique to donor oocyte banks. The highlights talk about the informed consent and directed donation. The donor should be able to provide broad consent or be given the opportunity to identify specific uses. And donor egg banks can also decline to work with donors who have too many specific requests. 
Additional consent should also be obtained if the oocytes are to be used for research. New to this document is the term de-identified donor as opposed to anonymous donor. And I think this is really important. With the increasing use of direct-to-consumer DNA tests, future children, oocyte donors, and their genetic relatives may be able to more easily identify one another. And we are seeing this more and more commonly in our practice. This document also addresses economic incentives and ethics of donor stimulation. To be clear, in traditional oocyte donation, a donor is reimbursed for her time, inconvenience, and the risks of ovarian stimulation. Payment is not for the eggs themselves and should not be dependent on the number of oocytes retrieved, nor the quality. Donation to oocyte banks should absolutely follow the same guidance. There's discussion of stimulation and prioritization of donor health in avoiding hyperstimulation or overly aggressive stimulation. The document also covers some really fascinating issues related to coercion and cost sharing. And I've seen a number of programs that are popping up enticing women to freeze their eggs and donate a portion of them. And I think that that is only gonna become more common and it can be ethically problematic. The document upholds the recommended limit of six oocyte donation cycles as a safety issue with increasing cumulative risk beyond six cycles. It discusses issues related to consanguinity and disclosure to donor-conceived offspring. The document also upholds the need for psychological counseling for all oocyte donors. So strongly encourage you to go back and read this document. I think it's increasingly important as we're moving towards more and more oocyte banking. The second paper is guidance on the limits to the numbers of embryos to transfer. This document replaces the August 2017 committee opinion on criteria for number of embryos to transfer. We all know that the goal of ART is to achieve a healthy singleton gestation. However, among cycles reported to start in 2017, 12.4% of women under 38 who had a successful IVF cycle had a twin gestation. Now that's an improvement, a market improvement from before, but we're still not quite there yet. Almost half of all ART multiple gestations in the U.S. occurred in women under 35 when two fresh or two frozen blasts were transferred. Elective placement of multiple embryos is often influenced by financial considerations. Studies have shown that insurance coverage for IVF was associated with transfer of fewer embryos. National data from 2013 demonstrated that clinics that performed higher rates of elective single embryo transfer in women less than 38 had decreased rates of multiple gestations and no significant impact on clinic-level live birth rates, and that really speaks to quality of lab. Single embryo transfer is recommended for good prognosis patients. Those under 35, euploid embryo transfer regardless of age and donor oocyte when the donor is less than 38. And I want to highlight one particular point as this has come up on several of our prior podcast issues. I really commend the practice committee for this recommendation and think it is a much needed statement. Single embryo transfer should be strongly recommended in all GC cycles, given the health risks associated with multiple gestations for the gestational carrier. At a minimum, it is recommended to follow age-related limits on the number of embryos to transfer in GC cycles on the basis of age of the woman who produced the oocytes. So 
donor egg cycles, in particular, euploid embryo transfers to GCs should really all be single embryo transfers. Couldn't agree with that more. I'm not really sure what the reason is other than artificially inflating success rate at the expense of someone's health. So uh, this, this should be loud and clear. Yeah, I think it's a cost issue. And admittedly, it is one that I face often when counseling patients who are using a GC. They want two for the price of one. And I, I understand that wholeheartedly. But I think that when you look at, I think the study needs to be done when you look at the incremental increased cost of raising twins in the first year of life, incremental increased cost of complications in pregnancy. I think over time those costs would balance out, but it is a hefty price to pay to use two gestational carriers. But nevertheless, I think that it needs to be done and it needs to be said. Eve, I really like the doubling down on single embryo transfer for gestational carriers, and to me it's a no-brainer. It's the right thing to do for these women taking on the risk of an IVF-conceived pregnancy. How do you feel about the rise of agencies now requiring PGT-tested embryos to be used in these cycles? And there's also, to me, the second issue about the lack of attention paid to the frozen embryo transfer cycle type, if we're really trying to focus on iatrogenic harm reduction for these gestational carriers. Yeah, I... I can't say I disagree with the PGT recommendations. While I think that the rate of aneuploidy, uh, particularly from donor oocytes, is low, um, I do think that if you can avoid getting into any sort of discussion about pregnancy termination, that's a good thing. And while PGT does not completely eliminate the risk, it does mitigate that risk. And I will say that I do also counsel my own patients who are using a GC to do PGT, even if they are of a younger age. So I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. We had a journal club about um, uterine transplant not all that long ago, and there was a big debate on whether PGTA embryo should be used or not, and their conclusion was no. It doesn't really add anything. It just adds cost. So I, I just want to make sure we're just not doing this because we can. Yeah, I think it's a different issue. So I think when it's your uterus and you're carrying the pregnancy and you have the autonomy for decision-making regarding pregnancy termination in cases of ongoing second trimester aneuploidy, I think that's okay. I think it's very challenging and very difficult to navigate when you have a gestational carrier who has an ongoing aneuploidy and while that risk is lower in donor eggs and that risk is lower in women who are under 38, it's still higher without PGT. And so I think that it's really not about cost and it's not about efficacy or success rates. It's really about mitigating that risk of inducing pregnancy termination in, in a uterus that is not your own. Well said, but I still think that risk is a lot lower than we think. I will give you that. <laughs> Touche. Kurt and Eve, great discussion about PGT testing embryos for gestational carriers, but what about to my second point about frozen embryo transfer cycle type? When you have the option of using a programmed versus a natural cycle and the growing body of literature to suggest that potentially the natural cycle may be safer for maternal and obstetrical outcomes. This is something we've talked about before. It's um, really a balance of uh, convenience versus what we think may be a better physiological circumstance. 
I don't know that the evidence on one side or the other really sways that pendulum, but we should be thinking about that balance. I agree. I also think, though, from a coordination standpoint where you're coordinating GC intended parents, multitude of schedules that, at least in our practice, we're not quite there yet for gestational carriers, but who knows what the future will bring. And speaking of luteal support, this next article is our seminal contribution. It is titled, Intramuscular Progesterone Optimizes Live Birth from Programmed Frozen Embryo Transfer, a Randomized Clinical Trial. This was written by first author Kate Devine with senior author Jeff McKeeby from Shady Grove Fertility. First, I want to commend the authors for doing a really well-designed RCT that addresses a real-world issue of progesterone use in frozen embryo transfer. According to preliminary 2018 reporting from SART, more than 75% of ART cycles involved embryo cryopreservation, and close to 189,000 frozen embryo transfers were performed in the U.S. It is vital to identify endometrial preparation protocols that optimize successful live births from frozen embryo transfers. And just to be clear, this entire paper looks at programmed cycles, not natural cycles. The optimal route of progesterone replacement for frozen embryo transfer is unknown. The authors build upon a previous study that I first authored, Infertility and Sterility, in 2013. This was a retrospective study comparing three groups of luteal support for FET, endometrin monotherapy, 200 milligrams twice a day, endometrin twice a day plus 50 milligrams of IM progesterone or combination therapy, and the 50 milligrams of IM progesterone was given once every three days, and that combination monotherapy group was compared to 50 milligrams of IM progesterone daily. And in my study, we found significantly higher pregnancy rates and live birth rates with combination therapy or IM compared to just vaginal monotherapy. So the addition of intramuscular progesterone really improved live birth rates. The present study was a three-armed prospective multi-center randomized controlled non-inferiority trial comparing daily intramuscular progesterone as the control group with each of the two experimental arms, and they used those same groups as that 213, uh, <laughs> they used the same groups as the 2013 study that I published. The primary outcome was the number of live births at a gestational age of 23 weeks or greater per vitrified warmed embryo transfer. An interim analysis using ongoing pregnancy as a live as a proxy for live birth was planned a priori and completed once 50% of the planned enrollment goal had been completed. The trial took place from October 2014 to May 2017. They had 1,125 subjects enrolled and randomized, and 997 transfers were included in the final analysis. At the beginning of the enrollment period, the subjects were randomly assigned in a one-to-one-to-one ratio to one of the three treatment arms. And again, those treatment arms are endometrin monotherapy, combination therapy with 50 milligrams of IM progesterone once every three days versus IM progesterone daily. After completion of the published interim analysis, randomization to ARM1, which was vaginal progesterone only, 
was discontinued because it demonstrated inferiority of that protocol. And then the subjects were randomly assigned at a one-to-one ratio to ARM2, combination therapy, or ARM3, intramuscular progesterone only. Similar to the 2013 study, the primary outcome of live birth was reduced by approximately 40% among subjects taking vaginal progesterone alone compared with the IM administration root groups. Biochemical pregnancy losses were more than twice as frequent among subjects receiving only vaginal progesterone than among subjects receiving any form of intramuscular progesterone. And I think it was really interesting. There were no differences between the group receiving daily IM progesterone and the group receiving vaginal progesterone plus IM once every three days. Patient satisfaction was reported to be greater in the vaginal progesterone arm. The reflections for this article was written by Leah Hawkins-Bressler and Jenny Mercero from UNC, and they note several points worthy of consideration. First, they cite that this protocol of vaginal progesterone is clearly inferior. But what about other regimens or other dosing protocols? Can we generalize these data to all vaginal progesterone? Second, this was an investigator-initiated trial sponsored by Fearing Pharmaceuticals, and patients were provided with study drug free of charge. Real-world perceptions may be colored by cost considerations, and the patient perceptions of drug choice may not be valid in a real-world setting. Third, they note that analysis would have been stronger if they restricted to euploid embryos, or at least uniformly to single embryo transfer. Though it was not statistically significant, the IM progesterone arm had a higher rate of double embryo transfer. And finally, to our initial point, no regimen can reach bioidentical status to the corpus luteum, and perhaps focus moving forward should not be so much on which progesterone regimen to use, but should we be doing program cycles, or should we be comparing program to natural cycles? Overall, this was a very elegantly done study, and it answers an important, clinically relevant, real-world issue. I love papers like this. All right, Kurt, I'm going to turn this over to you to talk about the next paper on ART and the risk of stillbirth. Thanks, Eve. It's a pleasure to discuss is assisted reproductive technologies and the risk of stillbirth and singleton pregnancies a systematic review and meta-analysis by Dr. Sarman and Bay from Aarhus University in Denmark. So, it's been almost 20 years since there was a groundswelling of research describing the paradigm-shifting finding that perinatal morbidity may be associated with conception with assisted reproductive technologies. I remember reviewing this subject myself and giving a few talks on it. We were all very focused on the association of preterm delivery and low birth weight. But even in the original groundbreaking studies, such as Jackson in 2004, there was a data point which we didn't talk too much about, and that was that there was an increase in stillbirth. Perhaps we didn't pay much attention to this because of the the actual prevalence of stillbirth was quite low, or maybe we couldn't figure out a mechanism of action. We still debate whether an association with ART and morbidity is related with the underlying condition of fertility, or perhaps whether it's the perturbation in the physiology or the way we treat or handle gametes or embryos. But I have no doubt that there's an association based on all the findings that I've seen in the literature. 
We know that ART is associated with maternal preeclampsia, hypertension, and of course, low birth weight. We've also found differences between fresh and frozen transfers. There's even epigenetic differences that have been uncovered. With that as a background, I want to describe this well-performed meta-analysis that focuses on a simple question, which is stillbirth. And again, it focuses on singleton pregnancies to avoid the potential confounding of the increased stillbirth with multiple gestation. I'll say up front that a study like this is difficult because it's hard to remove the confounding by indication. And there's also some definitional issues regarding what should be the proper control group and what's considered a stillbirth, you know, the specific definition. I won't digress and go down a rabbit hole to give you my opinion on what these definitions should be, but I'll say that this study looked at IVF compared to natural conceptions with the definition of stillbirth being intrauterine death from 20 weeks until birth. Of note, it didn't include perinatal death. So a good meta-analysis is very logical, and this one is. In this study, they looked at more than 233 articles, which included 19, which were able to be combined in the meta-analysis. This may sound low, but this combines more than 1,800,000 births and almost 7,000 stillbirths. These are very high numbers. The overall finding of this study demonstrate that pregnancies conceived with IVF, with or without ICSI, were associated with an increased risk of stillbirth compared to those conceived without medical assistance with the odds ratio of 1.82. The author also found that these studies were symmetrically distributed with no indication of publication bias. What's also important to note is that when you look at the forest plot, all but one of the studies actually showed an odds ratio tilting towards increased stillbirth. So this composite answer should be of no surprise to us. While there's value in the very precise nature of the answer, let's recognize that this risk, which is around 80%, might be as low as 37%, but might be more than doubling of the risk. This study is very clear and concise, and it should bring to the forefront the importance of these findings. Yes, stillbirth is still a rare but very serious event. I hope that further research will give us some specificity into the association, including perhaps what the underlying diagnosis of infertility may contribute, perhaps what type of ovarian stimulation or laboratory procedures may associate with his risk. Of course, it's important to determine a mechanism of action. So the accompanying reflections piece by doctors Abulgar, both Mona and Mohammed from Cairo, Egypt, give a provocative title, is stillbirth of significant importance? Well, of course it is. The authors do a fine job recounting the many strengths and, of course, some of the limitations of this meta-analysis. I don't think there should be any doubt that conception with IVF is associated with increased stillbirth. But the question that remains, such as how can we reduce such a risk? Is it, again, changes in our simulation protocols, laboratory procedures, and we still don't know whether the advent of frozen embryo transfer will alter this risk? Well, of course, these are important research questions and they should be further interrogated. There is no doubt that proper counseling for couples embarking on ART should include that there is a chance, in fact, an increased chance of that very traumatic event of stillbirth. It's just heartbreaking. I unfortunately recently had a patient that had a stillbirth after a highly desired ART pregnancy, age 43. And I'm afraid that may have been the the last good egg. There's nothing worse in my mind. I, I can't help but wonder what the mechanism of that is. Does it go back to the placenta and just poor placental perfusion? Is it the uterine environment and there's something with infertility that alters the uterine environment? I don't have any answers. 
Yeah, I think that's what we all speculate. And, and of course, we don't know. Um, I worry that sometimes we're, we kind of give this hand-waving. It's the uterine environment without knowing what it is, and somehow that forgives us. Um, but my mind is I don't think that people that practice ART recognize this risk because they often don't see the outcome of the pregnancy, and it's often not reported to them. It's a fair point. I suspect we'll learn a little bit more about these potential associations to ART as our MFM colleagues start to make some more inroads into understanding causes of stillbirth. I know there's been a lot of recent literature published in the New England Journal regarding whole exome sequencing, evaluating causes of stillbirth that don't have a clear cause. And I think the answers are forthcoming and it serve us well to make sure that we look back and associate that with ART as well. It's a good point, PHR. I think the problem is we don't have that many tools to assess what happened. I mean, we just have carrier type and placental pathology. We really don't have very sophisticated tools. Well, one day we'll know, I hope. I hope so, too. Speaking of perinatal outcomes, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about COVID. This next paper is titled Perinatal Outcomes of Pregnancies Resulting from ART in SARS-CoV-2 Infected Women, a Prospective Observational Study. This study was written by Virginia Ingalls Calvo with senior author Oscar Martinez Perez on behalf of the Spanish Obstetrics Emergency Group. As we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic is a life-threatening health problem, especially in high-risk individuals such as pregnant women. It is currently known that pregnant women compared with non-pregnant women are more frequently admitted to an intensive care unit and are more likely to be on a ventilator and ECMO and more likely to die of COVID-19 than non-pregnant counterparts. Furthermore, there are data that suggest that pregnancies achieved by IVF, both with autologous and donor oocytes, may possibly be at higher risk for complications. The data are no doubt controversial, but several studies have demonstrated higher risk of complications such as hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, low birth weight, small for gestational age babies, gestational diabetes, and preterm delivery in pregnancies conceived by ART. Thus, these authors hypothesize that the perinatal outcomes could be even worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. The situation was extremely serious in Spain as it was one of the hardest hit countries in the world. This group of Spanish authors described the perinatal and maternal outcomes of pregnancies in symptomatic and asymptomatic women infected with SARS-CoV-2. They classified pregnancies based on the method of conception, spontaneous versus IVF, an oocyte source, autologous versus donor, in patients who conceived after IVF. During the study period, 1,347 pregnant women were found to be PCR positive for COVID-19. 74 or 5.5% of these patients conceived by IVF. The investigators found no difference in disease severity based on the mode of conception. The rate of cesarean delivery in IVF-conceived pregnancies was really high, 55.4%, most commonly due to an induction failure, and C-section rate was higher in the IVF group. Perhaps more worrisome is that infected women who conceived by IVF had a higher rate of intensive care unit admission, which was attributed to a higher rate of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. There was a truly excellent reflections accompanying this piece that was written by Jacqueline Lee and Jennifer Kowas from Emory. 
They commend the authors on the large sample size and appropriate stratification into method of conception and oocyte source. They astutely point out several large limitations of this study. First, they note that although the reported rate of cesarean delivery and IVF conceived pregnancy in this study was well above the WHO's ideal rate of 10 to 15 percent, the investigators did not report the baseline cesarean delivery rate in this population before the pandemic or the rate of cesarean delivery among patients not infected with COVID-19 who delivered during this time period. Second, they point out that inclusion of only symptomatic patients without universal screening introduces a significant risk of selection bias. Finally, the investigators used logistic regression but controlled only for maternal age and the clinical presentation of the infection. They did not consider additional confounders, including race, multiple gestation, and gestational age. I personally look forward to seeing more outcome data UCSF's ASPIRE study, as well as the CDC COVID-19 pregnancy and V-SAFE registries. Actually, I more look forward to the pandemic being in the rearview mirror. But until then, I think we do need to keep studying outcomes and keep encouraging vaccination, especially in pregnancy and those planning pregnancy. All right, Kurt, off to you. Let's talk a little bit more about first trimester. Sure. I'm going to review the article entitled Performance of Kispeptin as a Biomarker for Miscarriage that Improves with Gestational Age During the First Trimester. The first author is Dr. Abara with a senior author, Dr. Dilio, from a conglomerate of authors with a collaboration from Imperial College of London, the University of St. Andrews, and Leuven in Belgium. The search for a biomarker to help in the prediction of early pregnancy loss has been long and difficult. There are a large number of molecules that have been proposed to be associated with pregnancy loss or ectopic pregnancy, only to fail in validation. In other words, they follow the fate of Carly Rae Jepsen and Call Me Maybe, simply one and done. Kispeptin is a relatively late list to the potential biomarkers, but it does have a little bit of biological plausibility, and it might be related to placentation, while we perhaps know it better for its relationship to puberty. However, kispeptin has been noted to be produced by the trophoblast, and there have been previous studies that have demonstrated that it rises during early pregnancy and decreased levels are potentially associated with miscarriage. One of these studies was performed by one of my fellow, Shante Sullivan-Pike, who worked with my group, and she had a publication in 2018 in Fertility and Sterility. In the current paper, the group from the United Kingdom and Belgium take this one step farther in a much larger cohort and are able to establish, again, that kispeptin may be a promising biomarker for miscarriage, alone or in combination with HCG. But the particular finding in this paper is that kispeptin may be a better marker when the pregnancy is farther along. In this case, the authors define that as greater than eight weeks. The study was performed after collecting plasma from a large cohort of women at risk for pregnancy loss and ultimately including 95 pregnancies that ended in miscarriage compared to 265 asymptomatic pregnancies that went on to be a normal gestation. The study is well done in both in terms of its handling, the samples, and the sophisticated methodology demonstrating that differences in serum levels yield a relatively good ROC curve for each marker independently and when combined. The take-home message is that it looks like the two markers together do a little bit better than each alone, but the real difference is that after eight weeks of gestation, HCG becomes a relatively poor marker, whereas kispeptin remains predictive. 
This is an interesting finding, as again, our previous work has demonstrated that HCG levels and kisspeptin levels are associated only in miscarriage, but not in a normal pregnancy. For example, kisspeptin and HCG may be two different markers of the health of a pregnancy. When they're both declining, a failing gestation is apparent, but the natural history of the conception might allow that kisspeptin is more predictive after eight weeks when the HCG story is a little bit more muddled. It's also important to note this study looked at a population of women with a pregnancy of unknown location. Unfortunately, kisspeptin was not very predictive in this situation um, as it was for predicting a miscarriage. One final point about this paper is that the authors are very optimistic with an accuracy prediction of around 83 to 87%. In general, that level of accuracy is very good for studies of biomarkers. However, is it really good enough to be a clinical adjuvant when it comes to miscarriage? Well, 87% may sound high, but if you're using this information to predict miscarriage and you're wrong 13% of the time, you're going to have an awful lot of very unhappy patients. There's an insightful reflection by Dr. Li and Hu, both from the People's Republic of China, that describe the exciting nature of this paper, but also its limitations. The limitations include that this assay is a little bit difficult to perform, a bit sensitive, and of course, this study needs validation. Of note, the area under the curve for this paper was around 87.5, where the previous paper I mentioned it was around 95. It's not unusual for follow-up papers to have lower accuracy or a lower area under the curve, and it again reflects the, the importance of prospective validation. This can't be minimized. In summary, very strong work from a very productive group studying early pregnancy. I look forward to seeing more data coming from this group and hopefully with validation of this particular assay. I also look forward to further work in this area to perhaps discover new markers or ways to challenge our current paradigm of diagnosing women with miscarriage or pregnancy of unknown location. Glad this paper was uh, sees the light of day, but unfortunately, I don't think we can quite use it yet for our clinical work. I feel like that's the holy grail, is trying to find biomarkers that we can draw with initial HCG that will tell us, with much more accuracy, live birth rates. Yeah, I think the other hard part is, if we find a good marker like this one, how do we use it? Because we have a very good marker in ultrasound. So the, the question is, are we trying to replace ultrasound or just trying to find a situation where if the ultrasound is not um, definitive, we have other markers to help us? Yeah, I think of it as more of like a pre-ultrasound marker. When you come in for your initial beta in an ART-conceived pregnancy, not only would you get your beta HCG level, which in and of itself can be predictive, as can the rise, but other serum biomarkers that would tell you right off the bat this is a viable pregnancy. Think of all the anxiety reduction that we would have if we knew that right up front. I agree with you. Unfortunately, this paper is not going to help us because it looks like kispeptin is best utilized after eight weeks of gestation. Unfortunately, that's not usually a debate. No, it's not. It's not so useful. But interesting nonetheless, and I always like hearing what's new on the horizon out there. This next paper is titled Utility of Routine Screening Fetal Echocardiogram in Pregnancies Conceived by In Vitro Fertilization by Kurt Bjorkman with senior author Mert Ozan Batiar from Yale, and I apologize if I mispronounce the name. Currently, the American Heart Association, the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine, and the American Society of Echocardiography 
all recommend consideration of fetal echo in all IVF-conceived pregnancies. The objective of this study was to evaluate the incidence of congenital heart disease among pregnancies conceived by IVF as detected by fetal echo. The secondary aim was to evaluate the clinical significance of CHD diagnosis by fetal echo and the utility of routinely screening IVF pregnancies that are at an otherwise low risk for congenital heart disease. This was a retrospective cohort study on fetal echo performed in pregnancies conceived by IVF between 2012 and 2018 in a single tertiary referral center. 9,252 fetuses were examined at a mean gestational age of 22 weeks. In total, 24% of fetuses were conceived by ART, while in 22%, the only indication for fetal echo was IVF. The incidence of cardiac defects was compared with that in 188,000 live births from the Connecticut Birth Defects Registry and statewide hospital discharge data. The odds ratio of congenital heart disease in the IVF group compared to the statewide population was 1.4, but the confidence interval crossed 1. It was 0.9 to 2.1, and therefore this did not reach statistical significance. Overall, only 26 fetuses were diagnosed with congenital heart defects, 21 of which with clinically insignificant VSDs. In addition, one had pulmonary stenosis that was diagnosed antenatally but was not present at birth. Only four postnatally confirmed defects were clinically significant. The main finding of this study was that for every 510 fetal echoes performed to evaluate for CHD in pregnancies conceived by ART, one clinically significant case is expected to be found. Another major point is that data provided by this study shows that the incidence of CHD in ART pregnancies in the absence of other risk factors is not at all significantly different to that in the baseline population. We basically expect to see about a 1% rate of congenital heart defects. The authors propose that routine screening with fetal echo in all ART pregnancies is not justified in the absence of other risk factors. There was an excellent reflections to this piece written by Dr. Daglas and Kolobiankis, who point out not just that 500 scans are needed for one clinically relevant case, but that 1,020 scans are needed for detection of one congenital heart defect that would actually require intervention, a more appropriate number needed to treat. Furthermore, they highlight that one in 2,000 women would be falsely informed of a significant heart defect that was not confirmed postnatally. They also note that besides the stress associated with the examination itself, This is a particularly vulnerable population of patients, and a false diagnosis may cause unnecessary anxiety and adversely affect the experience and safety of pregnancy. My own take on this is that I'm always a little skeptical when guidelines are set forth by societies that benefit financially from interventions. And I think these data really demonstrate that it's time for those societies to revisit their guidelines. This is a great article, and I really like these articles that challenge society guidelines and kind of persistent dogma. 
I think the discussion section of this article is really interesting because they talk a little bit about how screening every IVF pregnancy for CHD was probably not a very fruitful endeavor, but the minute you added a risk factor, be it a history of a child with a previous CHD or maternal history of CHD or even advanced maternal age, then it became much more likely that you would find something. So I think probably the way forward is to just better risk stratify women rather than kind of a blanket, everyone should get a fetal echo if you've had IVF. And the more nuanced approach is IVF plus some other risk factor. I'm not certain I would even add in IVF as an independent risk factor. We know that multiple pregnancy is a specific risk for congenital heart defects. And so perhaps in the setting of ART-induced multiples, that may in and of itself be a risk factor. But I just am not convinced that ART alone is enough of a risk factor to justify routine fetal echocardiography in all ART-conceived pregnancies. Eve, I agree with you. I think we're looking for easy fixes and easy thresholds. All people with this get that, and I'm not sure that this is a good idea. It's just, again, a huge expenditure, a huge manner of excess tests being performed. Yeah, and I think a lot of that point about vulnerability in the ART population and stress, these exams add a lot of stress and these findings add a lot of stress for things that are really not clinically relevant. And cost. As a final point about this article, it's also nice to see a husband and wife team working on research together, both Kurt Bjorkman, who's a pediatrician, and Sarah Bjorkman, who's an REI fellow, collaborated on this project together, which is always fun. Ah, I love that. I saw that. I didn't know if they were related, so did not comment on that. But um, that's wonderful, and kudos to them for a really great article. Pietro, I'm going to pass the baton to you to talk about um, POI and genetics. Thanks, Eve. Fragile X-associated primary ovarian insufficiency is a particularly challenging and heterogeneous clinical scenario for patients and providers. In this month's issue, Dr. Christina Trevion examines why not all women with fragile X premutation suffer from POI and the associated early menopause. To do this, they identified a cohort of nearly 114 women who experienced menopause before the age of 35 and those at the age of 50 or older who had a known fragile X premutation of 55 to 200 repeats. They then performed whole genome sequencing. Using the sequencing, they were able to perform gene-based association studies as well as calculate a polygenic risk score derived from common variants associated with natural age at menopause. The authors found that polygenic risk score on the basis of common variants associated with natural age at menopause explained approximately 8% of the variance in the risk of fragile X-associated POI. Furthermore, two genes, SUMO1 and KRR1, were identified as possible modifying genes associated with the risk of fragile X POI. SUMO1, aside from having a fun name, is also important because it's involved in granulosa cell apoptosis, whereas KRR1's role in reproduction was a little less direct. Kurt, I really like studies that try to tackle an old problem with modern analysis techniques. In this article, in an effort to understand why some women experienced early POI and others didn't, they use polygenic risk scores to understand if there are underlying susceptibility genes driving some of this difference. What are your thoughts on polygenic risk scores for exploring differences in clinical presentation rather than for selecting against eye color or autism in embryos? I don't know how to answer that, Pietro. Obviously, that's a very insightful question, but um, 
you know, we've seen many times in medicine what is meant to be for the greater good is often used in the wrong way. Eve, what are your thoughts on polygenic risk scores used in this way? I think we have a lot to learn about polygenic scores. I think probably we will be able to ultimately get some good data and utilization, but I am very concerned about the dark side of of where that may land. Kurt, I'm excited that you're going to present Dana McQueen's article on chronic endometritis. This is a fantastic article, and it was Dana's thesis. Oh, that's terrific. I didn't know it was her thesis. What a well-done presentation, and it's nice to have our research requirement, REI, provide some very valuable clinical information. In this study, which is titled Redefining Chronic Endometritis, the Importance of Endometrial Stromal Changes, Dana McQueen and some other wonderful authors, including Mary Ellen Pavone out of Northwestern, have a, what I think is a very concise and useful study. So their goal was to develop criteria for chronic endometritis and compare this prevalence in chronic endometritis between women with recurrent pregnancy loss and controls. Now, recurrent pregnancy loss is hard enough to define for us, and we have difficult definitions for that, but endometritis has also been a vexing problem. Chronic endometritis is chronic inflammation of the endometrium characterized by plasma cell infiltration. Although the disorder has been characterized for decades, strict diagnostic criteria have not been defined. And I took those two sentences directly out of a very well-done introduction. So this study sets out to basically enroll a cohort of women in 2019 through 2020 and see if they can find pathologic criteria to help define what is a better way of finding this endometritis. The cohort was, as we might expect, a mean age of 33. The reproductive pregnancy loss definition is in the paper, and the pathology is, I think, what highlights the study. So they looked at the endometrial samplings with H&E staining and tried to identify plasma cells. They did that both with H&E and also with an antibody CD138. I won't give you all the the information because it, again, is a clear and well-done study, but they looked at different criteria and had trouble differentiating cases and controls. In other words, there were plasma cells found in cases and controls. There were plasma cells with the antibody staining CD138 with cases and controls. And it wasn't until they combined other features of chronic endometritis and endometrial changes in combination with finding plasma cells, that they find a diagnosis where they could differentiate all normals from all abnormals. So their proposal is that chronic endometritis should be defined as the presence of one or more plasma cells for 10 high-powered fields, either by H&E staining or using the CD138 antibody, but only in the setting of endometrial stromal changes, such as spindling of cells, edema, breakdown, pigment disposition, errors of hypercellularity, and the presence of inflammation other than plasma cells. So I think this makes a big difference. If we can have a stricter definition of endometritis, we're going to have a much better diagnostic test, and then that diagnostic test can be used to help us differentiate the therapies for recurrent pregnancy loss. So I appreciate this study in that it's really delving into some muddy waters but I think that this might actually be clinically useful and we might be able to change our definition. I hope we can do this in a prospective way, again, in other studies, but I'm very impressed that this paper was performed and published in Fertility and Sterility. 
I'm clearly biased as the fellowship director here, but I do want to give Dana a big shout out for this work. I also think that it's really a translational project. She did a lot of the staining, the pathology, spent time in the path lab preparing these samples, as well as clinically obtaining the samples and counseling patients. So really, I think just setting the bar very high for what fellowship research should look like. So I'm going to bring this to my lab right away. We've got used to the Noyes criteria are no longer being useful, so now we can institute the McQueen criteria. So I think the problem with a lot of the, the chronic endometritis literature is that there's a natural tension between the REI who's collecting it and the pathologist who's interpreting it. And somehow the, bra- the, the gap needs to be bridged because if we're looking for, to the pathologist for useful information that's going to help guide antibiotic therapy or patient counseling, they got to be invested in this. they got to know this literature. And I think sometimes it's on us to share what's coming out in the field with them and help them provide a more accurate diagnostic read on the endometrial biopsies. So kudos to Dana for this. I think this is great. Now let's just make sure that the pathologists hear about it too. So I think we have one final paper to review uh, for this podcast, and I'm going to go back to Eve and some more work at Northwestern. Uh, we saved this one for last because I think it's um, relatively light. Just sit back, listen to it, and uh, I hopefully you'll learn something. Kurt and Eve, the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed so much of the old way of doing things, even how infertility fellows are interviewed for fellowship. In this edition of FNS, my old co-resident and best friend, Dr. Eduardo Harriton, along with her very own Dr. E. Feinberg, explored how the change to web-based interviews for REI fellows impacted applicant and program directors' experience with interviews. Overall, they found high levels of satisfaction with web-based interview by program directors and applicants alike. When asked specifically about the perceptions, 100% of applicants reported spending less money this interview season, and nearly half of applicants were able to attend more interviews than they planned if on-site interviews were held. From the program director side, there was a greater than 90% median cost savings from the interview season the year prior, with the majority also interviewing more applicants than they had last cycle. However, only 20% of program directors strongly agreed that web-based interviews should persist beyond the pandemic, compared to 43% of applicants. Interestingly, approximately 85% of both groups strongly agreed or agreed that web-based interviews would be an acceptable initial screening step prior to inviting candidates for on-site interviews. Eve, in the accompanying reflection to this piece by Dr. Garneau and Hawkins-Bressler, they point out the importance of centering equity to improve the match process. As a program director yourself, how do you think web-based interviews level the playing field or further disadvantage certain groups? And how can we improve the process this upcoming cycle with an eye towards equity? It's a tremendously valid point and one that is being explored not just in fellowship <coughs> interviews, but also in residency interviews as well. It's been shown that financially disadvantaged candidates interview at fewer programs and may may fare worse. And so I do think that web-based interviews really levels the playing fields. The question that I have, and I think TBD, is whether or not this is a permanent change that is going to forever impact the way that we conduct fellowship interviews beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't know. I will say that having gone through the cycle and having met our first-year fellow in person for the first time when she shows up for fellowship, I felt like web-based interviews were an accurate way of assessing our candidate. 
I'm really pleased with our match and hope that others are too. And we've talked about doing an extension study looking at fellowship program directors and candidates after the match and seeing whether or not expectations were met on both sides. So I think more on this to follow, but I do think that some form of web-based interviewing is, is likely here to stay. I just don't know what it looks like. Not sure it's going to stay exclusively as web-based interview. We've talked about this a lot. I don't know what I'm looking for when I interview a fellow, and um, it's a, it really is kind of a little bit arbitrary to some aspects. But as human nature, my arbitrariness is more engaged when I meet somebody in person. I agree. I also think from the fellow perspective, it's important for the fellows to see the facility. It's important for the fellows to get a feel for the city. I really worry that web-based interviews take take that aspect away. But I do think perhaps incorporation as a first step, maybe the interviews become a two-step process. I just don't know what the future brings. As the fellow on the podcast, I could tell you I would really appreciate the opportunity for it to be used as a screener. It allows me to screen the program, allows you to screen me, the applicant. And then we don't waste each other's time. And if we are both mutually interested in, in learning more about each other, then go ahead and have that follow-up, that second on-site interview, and make it more cost-effective for both parties. And I'd love to see it stick around like that, but I think like so many things in the pandemic, it's still so up in the air and TBD. Do you think you would hire a partner by Zoom? I think I'm currently interviewing for jobs by Zoom. <laughs> That's a great question, Kurt. In the real world or outside of medicine, I think many companies hire by web-based interviews. All right. Well, that was a really nice conversation. Thank you, Pietro, and thank you, Eve. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope that our listeners will learn a lot. We look forward to engaging you uh, next month as well. So for now, thank you for listening to another episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. And I will give my goodbyes. And Eve and Pietro, please do the same. I will see everyone next month and have a great month, everyone. Stay healthy. Thanks, Kurt and Eve. It's always a pleasure to join both of you on the podcast. The conversation continues beyond the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Fertility and Sterility and Twitter at Fert and Sturt. And please make sure to catch the most recent August Journal Club Live that is now available online or wherever you receive your podcasts. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.